series this morning. And you might be wondering to yourself, why Judges? Why Judges? If you've ever read Judges, you know why I'm asking that question. There are parts of the Bible, if you've read it through, uh, that are difficult, that are hard to understand. Uh, And some can often offend modern sensibilities. There are other verses that frequently end up on t-shirts and coffee mugs. People declare them to be their life verses. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and just venture to guess that none of those verses are from Judges. This book is violent. It's unsettling at times, especially as we get into some of the later chapters. Many times the character of some of the judges is at best questionable. So back to my question, why judges? First, as we draw near to Easter, the book of Judges will serve as a mirror for our own hearts. As we encounter the brokenness of the people and judges, may we allow the Holy Spirit to knock us off of our moral high horses and be confronted with our own brokenness. In short, the book of Judges will remind us of how badly we need a Savior so that our celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday might be that much more richer and sweeter. I have a friend who is a songwriter, and he had a, a line in one of his songs that said, uh, you can't appreciate uh, the sunshine until you've seen a cloudy day, right? So it's, uh, it's being reminded of, of who we are and how badly we need a Savior that makes, that makes us appreciate Jesus that much more. Secondly, in an election year where we'll be tempted to point our fingers outward at our ideological enemies, the book of Judges will remind us that one of the greatest enemies of the church is not out there, it's in here. Thirdly, the book of Judges will act as Somewhat of a divine rumbling strip. You know what a rumbling strip is, right? Ask my wife. Whenever I veer off the road on the highway a little bit, I hit the rumble strip. She hates that, right? No one likes that. It's unnerving. It's unsettling. It's jarring. But it gets your attention. And that's its purpose, right? It gets your attention. It wakes you up. And it's so much better than the alternative. If the rumble strip weren't there and you were to go even further out of your lane. So Judges serves us as a divine warning, warning us against the spiritually lethal nature of sin. So it wakes us up, it it confronts us with the reality of sin. Another reason to preach the book of Judges is to remind ourselves that all of God's word is useful for teaching, correcting, reproof, training in all righteousness, even the hard parts. So it's good to sometimes put the work in in a difficult book uh, and, and learn from, from what it has to say. Uh, it, it keeps us from just spending time preaching the passages that we like. Sometimes we get into those difficult books. It's good for us. And finally, the book of Judges will give us a front row seat 
to a tension. There's a tension in this book that this book does not by itself resolve. We'll see this in our text today even. And the, t- the tension is this. It's between a God who has promised to be faithful to his people and a God who must punish evil, even when that evil is in his own people. Which aspect of God will win out at the end of the day? Will his faithfulness rule out over his demand for justice or will his demand for justice rule out over his faithfulness? There's this tension all through the book of Judges that doesn't get resolved in the book itself, but it points us forward to how it will be. The book of Judges doesn't often leave its treasures in plain sight for us to discover, like our favorite verses. It's instead like a coal mine. There are stunning diamonds in there. If we're willing to put in some hard work to dig, to get a little dirty. And so I invite you to dig with me this morning as we get started in this new book. So grab your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 1. We're going to read, well we're not going to read, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to do something a little different. But we're going to be looking at chapter 1, all of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 verse 5. Uh, if you need to use the Pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 236. Like I said, I'm going to do things differently. I'm not going to ask you to stand like we usually do while I read uh, all 45 verses of this passage. Uh, and I'm not even going to read them all for us today. It would take a third of my sermon time uh, just to read them all. So I'm going to summarize in places, uh, in other places, I'll uh, direct you to the text itself and we'll look at it directly. Uh, but do have it open on your laps. Follow along uh, as, as we work through this passage. All right. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning that all of your word is God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in all righteousness even the difficult parts and the scriptures that can make us uncomfortable. May your word to us this morning from the book of Judges challenge us and mold us more into the character of your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Before, we've got some work to do. This is, uh, yeah. Before we dive in, to the text, it's necessary for me to give you some historical background, and I really feel like we need to address a major elephant in the room. So first we're going to tackle the elephant, and then we'll get to the background before getting to the, the text itself. So remember I said earlier that the book of Judges can offend modern sensibilities? Well, one of them is an accusation that many have made And some will even tell you that this is the reason why they cannot believe in the God of the Bible, because of the book of Joshua and Judges, okay? And it's this, why would a loving God command the genocide of the people living in the land that God told his people to go in and possess? Devote them to destruction, he says. How? 
Can a loving God do that? Doesn't that contradict two of the Ten Commandments? Isn't it always wrong to kill people who've, who haven't attacked you and to steal their stuff, their land? Why does God command his people to devote these people to destruction and to possess their land? How is this an exception? For many people, they can't reconcile that. How does that make sense? Okay? So I need to talk for a little bit of time here, digging into this before we get to chapter 1. But let me just clearly say this. This is not God commanding genocide or ethnic cleansing. This is a complete misunderstanding of what's happening here. For one simple reason, God is not commanding the people of the land to be wiped out because of their ethnicity or their nationality. That has nothing to do with it. He's commanding their destruction because they're guilty. He's commanding their destruction because they're guilty. What are they guilty of? I'm going to spare you the gory details because I know we have some young children here. uh, And that might make for some awkward car rides home. But write this down. If you want to look later, go to Leviticus 18, verses 6 to 30. And Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. And when you read these passages, you'll know what I'm, what I'm talking about here. The, the people of this land were wicked, corrupt, oppressive, and perverted people. I hear a lot of people talking about our current day and age in the United States and the West and, and bemoaning the fact that things are really bad. You know, they're worse than they've ever been. Well, read those verses. It's been worse. Uh, it's been a lot worse. Uh, there's, there's things in there. Like I said, I, I just, with young children in the room, I don't feel comfortable talking about them. But just know that these people are, are very much guilty. So God's command to devote the people to destruction was an act of justice. And Israel was the instrument that God used to execute his justice. And by the way, God is, is an equal, equal opportunity God here because fast forward and you come to the end of uh, the monarchy in, in Israel and Judah and God's people are being kicked out of the land because they have become just like the people that they went in there to dispossess. This is an act of justice. We've seen in the Bible God using other instruments to carry out justice on other groups of people who've committed horrendous evils. One of the most well-known is the flood, Noah's flood, that wiped out an entire population of the earth except for eight people. And there was the raining down of fire that consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. So God devoting these people to destruction does not mean that God hates non-Israelites. That's not what this means. It means that God hates wickedness and that God hates evil and perversion and oppression. And even more evidence for the fact that this is not ethnic cleansing is in the book of Joshua when we learn of one of the people of the land. Her name was Rahab, a prostitute, who helped the Israelites and made their God her God. A foreigner who became a member of God's people and was even included in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. 
If this was about genocide, she should never have been allowed to live if this was about ethnic cleansing. Now, one of the best ways to understand, I think, God's judgment on these people is to consider the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. And in his perfect foreknowledge, he alone knows who will ultimately be condemned anyway on the last day, on judgment day. And so, it's entirely within his prerogative as God of the universe to bring judgment down on certain people of his choosing early, right? It's not really early in God's timing, but in our perspective, right? It's entirely within his prerogative to judge them early. All right, we're almost done with this elephant. One more question remains. What, what's to stop people today from saying, hey, God told me I should wipe out these people who are of the devil, right? What's to stop someone today from, from making a similar claim? And this question brings up a vital uh, issue of God's, uh, of the, the Christian view of God's revelation, Historically, Orthodox Christianity has agreed that the Bible alone is the complete revelation of God's special will. It's complete. There are some today who claim to receive special revelation still. Words from God as modern-day prophets or apostles on an equal level with guys like Moses and Joshua or the apostles This is extremely dangerous because understand, there's no check here against declaring some kind of new holy war. There's no check against someone just saying, God told me to do it. So if you ever find yourself in a church where people are claiming some form of new special revelation from God, run. The scriptures that we have are sufficient for us to know God and to follow him faithfully. They're sufficient. There's only one related and timely disclaimer before we get to the text that remains. And it's this. With everything going on in Israel and Gaza today, it's important for us to understand that we cannot use the book of Judges or Joshua to draw a straight line to today in order to declare that what is happening now is a result of some divine command from the Lord. We can't do that. We cannot use this book to draw a straight line to today. Is that clear? I'm not saying that Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself. It certainly does. I'm only saying that their actions are not the result of some new divine imperative from God today or even an ancient one from here in the book of Judges. And that's it, okay? So now let's lay down some historical uh, context for the text today. Many of you are probably familiar with the events of the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses to deliver God's people from slavery and oppression from the Egyptians. There were ten plagues, and then God leads his people out of Egypt in dramatic fashion when he parts the Red Sea, and the people walk through on dry ground. 
And as Pharaoh and his army pursue them, the sea comes crashing back down and consumes them. God then gave his people the Ten Commandments through Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And God led his people through the desert to the borders of the promised land that he was giving to his people to possess. But they chickened out. They chickened out because the people of the land were big and scary. So God punishes them by causing them to wander the desert for 40 years until that generation dies out. All but Joshua and Caleb, the only two who didn't chicken out but were overruled by the majority. And now, after Moses died, Joshua, his successor, who finally leads God's people, into the promised land. And one of the first cities they defeated was the city you're probably well familiar with if you've read the Bible. Uh, it's the city of Jericho and how they marched around the city seven days and God caused the walls of the city to miraculously fall to the ground. And so under Joshua's leadership, God's people take the land in a, in a rather uh, blitzkrieg fashion. And the book of Judges And our text today begins with the death of Joshua. And the reality is that while the people did take the land under Joshua's leadership, there still remained many pockets of resistance where the land was not fully in their control yet. So now the Israelites need to finish the job. They need to fully drive out the people from the land. And this is where the book of Judges begins. All right? So we've we've tackled the elephant, we've laid the historical background here so we know where we are. And so as we work through today's text and the time we have left, we're going to see how seriously God takes even a little disobedience. I've got three points to guide us. Compromise, consequence, and Christ. Okay, so let's get right to it. Look at the first two verses with me. Judges 1, 1 to 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Even now, it's grace. God is doing this. God's people only need to be faithful So chapter 1 follows nine of Israel's tribes and their efforts to fully drive out the people of the land. The narrative begins with the tribe of Judah, and much of it is given to the tribe of Judah, who the Lord says should go up first. Now, as you read through this text, you'll find that uh, Judah is pretty successful. But there were still some compromises and, and shouldn't that be a warning to us today? That even in the church, we can look really successful at times, but there can be small compromises along the way. We need to be careful to guard against them. Almost immediately, they slip up. How do they do this? It's subtle, but it's not faithful. They invite the tribe of Simeon to help them. But remember, God didn't say that Judah and Simeon shall go up first. He said Judah shall go up first. And he's giving the land into their hands. 
So what's happening here is Judah is doubting that the Lord who said, I have given this land into your hand, Judah is doubting them. They look at the task that the Lord assigned them and they don't think that they can do it without another tribe's help. This may seem minor. It might seem nitpicky. But notice that as this chapter unfolds, and even more so as the book of Judges unfolds, what seems like a minor crack now is only going to widen. And this is the pattern of, of the whole book of Judges. It starts small, and it progressively gets worse and worse. The narrative continues, detailing much of Judah's successes. And for a moment, the spotlight shines on Caleb in verses 11 to 15, who rewards the faithfulness of of Othniel by giving his daughter, Aksa, in marriage to him. This is probably the lone bright spot here in the text. We get a picture of Caleb as a father, rewarding faithfulness to God's commands. And as parents, shouldn't we want that for our children, to marry spouses who are faithful the Lord's commands. And this is what we see in these verses here. But now look with me at verse 19. It says, The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This is stunning. Because it says the Lord is with Judah, but they could not drive out the people of the plain because why? They had chariots of iron. Their, their technology was better than ours. Their weapons were stronger. Understand what's happening here is the same thing that happened earlier in verse 3. Again, the crack is widening. As Judah assesses the situation in verse 3, they didn't think that they had the resources to be successful by themselves. So they invited Simeon to join them, remember. And here they assess the situation and determine that chariots of iron are too much for them to handle. This might seem like common sense in the eyes of the world, but it results in faithlessness because they didn't trust God, who in verse 19 said that he was with him. God was with them. Tim Keller has a wonderful way with words. And he says this to help unpack uh, and apply this principle for us today. Listen to this carefully. I'll say it twice. It's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings. It's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing. It's our lack of faith in his strength. It's our lack of faith in and his strength. Whenever we rely on ourselves and the seeming common sense of the world, instead of simply obeying God and trusting him, we will give up just like Judah did when it gets hard. And if you skip down briefly to chapter 2, verse 2, we see how God judges these events. Judah said we could not drive them out, but God says, no, you would not drive them out. What Judah saw as good reasons for failure, God sees as excuses. God will never ask you to do something that's impossible for you to do in his strength. 
When we rely on our own strength and fail to trust God's strength, there is never an I can't. There's only an I won't. So what are some hard things that God commands us to do that often we make excuses for not doing? Here's just a few that I could think of. Colossians 3.13 says, We are to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Common sense hears that and looks at certain situations, looks at our own resources and says, I can't forgive that person. You don't know what they've done to me. I can't forgive that person. I won't. Shows a lack of strength in God's, shows a lack of faith in God's strength. Here's another one. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Common sense says, I can't. I can't tell the truth because I'll lose my job or that person will think poorly of me or it'll hurt them too badly. I can't tell them the truth. But God sees this as an I won't. It shows lack of faith in his strength. I could go on, just read through the Bible and look at all the commands, the imperatives, things that we're supposed to be doing. Now moving on in our text, Judah's I can't attitude spreads like a virus to the other tribes and it gets really bad. Verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin fails to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And so they lived side by side with the people that they were supposed to drive out. Verses 22 to 26, the house of Joseph makes a covenant with some of the people of the land. This is something that they were strictly forbidden from doing. But they do it anyway because it made sense in the eyes of the world. Because it was convenient. In verse 27, to the end of the chapter, things really start unraveling as the tribe, uh, as tribe after tribe, uh, like a broken record, does not drive out the people they were supposed to. You read it, it's just over and over. And they did not drive out these people. They did not drive out these people again and again and again and again. Some of them, like the tribe of Zebulun, verse 30, figured if we can't drive them out, we may as well gain some economic advantage here from the situation. Let's make them our slaves. That was something they weren't supposed to do either. And in that, on that point, they're becoming more like the people of the land that they were sent there to drive out. Things got so bad that by the time you get to the tribe of Asher in verse 32, it wasn't that the Canaanites were living among them. No, it says they lived among the Canaanites. That's how bad it got. In verse 34, we see the tribe of Dan wasn't driving out the Amorites. It was the Amorites who were driving them out. And the chapter ends in verse 36 with the headline not being about Israel's borders, the news of the day is about the Amorite borders. As we turn to chapter 2, the Lord's verdict is that Israel is disobeyed in, a, in two ways. Look at verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
Israel disobeyed coming and going. They did what they were not supposed to do. And they failed to do what they were supposed to do. But consider the situation Israel now finds themselves in. They disobeyed, or rather, they they obeyed to a point. They even saw some successes and victories. But they were interwoven with serious compromises as they failed to do what the Lord commanded. Mostly, mostly because their assessment was this. It was too hard. They couldn't couldn't obey because it was too hard. So compromises were made. Now let's look at the disastrous consequences of their compromise. This is the second point, consequence. Look with me at verse 3. So now I say, this is the Lord speaking, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now that Israel wouldn't drive out the people of the land as God commanded them, they're going to be thorns in their sides. They're now living among, side by side, with idol-worshipping Canaanites. And God is going to give them what they wanted. He's going to allow them to sleep in the bed that they have made. And like buried landmines, the evil ways of the Canaanites lie dormant, ready to explode the spiritual lives of God's people. This is what happens when compromise sneaks in. This is what happens when sin is allowed to rent space, to rent a room in your life. It will become a thorn in your side. It will not lead you to joy like you think it will. It will rob you of your joy. God wants obedience in every area of your life, not just some. The problem is that for many of you, your sin seems too difficult to drive out. So you rented a room. You get comfortable with it. But it will ultimately be a thorn that robs you of true joy. So verse 3 also says that their gods or their idols will be a snare. Now, we don't worship idols like the Canaanites did, little wooden or stone statues. But we do in different ways. This is because idolatry is ultimately about our hearts. You see, the gods of the Canaanites were, were mostly had to do with agriculture and crops. You know, they had, they had gods for the sun and gods for the weather and all this sort of stuff, right? And the temptation is because your life depended on the success of your crops, the temptation was, hey, my neighbors got good crops and they're sacrificing to this sun god. If your worth and your identity are tied up in the success of your crops, then you're going to be tempted. Hey, maybe I'll make a little sacrifice here to this god so that my crops will be good. You know, my neighbors are looking good. His grass is pretty green. You know, maybe I'll make a little sacrifice here. I'll still worship the Lord, though. You know, that, I'm not going to compromise there. But, you know, just a little, little here, you know. 
It's about our hearts. Idolatry is when we take some good gift in the world that God has created and we make it the ultimate source of our security, our identity, or our value. It could be your job. It could be your grades. It could be a sport that you play. It could be your comfort. It could be your health. It could be your friends, your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could even be your marriage. All of these things are good things that God has given for us to enjoy. But as soon as they become the source of our ultimate value and identity, they've crossed the line from being a gift to be enjoyed to being a God that we worship with our time, with our money, with our thoughts. Verse 3 says that these, these idols trap us. They're a snare. It's because there's such a, an addictive nature to them. When something becomes an idol, it ensnares us. And in a sense, we, ha- we have to have it. We have to have it, and we can't say no to it. We're addicted to it. It ensnares us. And when we fail to perform and live up to its demands, it's a merciless cruel master. It's a snare and it's a thorn. These consequences lead God's people to weeping in verses 4 and 5. And the name of that place is named after uh, just that, weeping. And perhaps there was some form of repentance, but as you'll see in the book of Judges, there's a repeating cycle that plays out. And as it goes on, the repentance gets weaker, and so does the deliverance. Now that you're all good and depressed, beaten down and discouraged, let's discover some good news here in the text. Let's, let's see Christ in this text, in my final point. Look with me at first one of chapter 2. Now it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Remember that tension I talked about earlier? Well, here it is. The tension between God's judgment and his faithfulness. God says, I will never break my covenant with you. But then in verse 3, God's judgment is that he will not drive the people out from among them. They will be thorns and snares that ultimately will lead to death. How is it that these two things can be reconciled? How is God's faithfulness compatible with God's judgment? Look at verse 1 more closely with me. It's no coincidence that the angel of the Lord goes up from Gilgal to Bochim. I mean, why Gilgal? Is that where the angel of the Lord lives? No. This is significant. Joshua chapter 5 verse 9 tells us what happened at Gilgal. It was right after the people renewed the covenant. Uh, they, they were, uh, the, the people were circumcised because they hadn't been uh, in the 40 years while they were wandering the desert. So the covenant is being renewed. And in verse 9 of chapter 5 in Joshua, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. 
And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. This is a reminder of God's grace. He is the one who rolls away your reproach. He is the one who rolls away your shame. The name Gilgal literally sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. And notice that the angel goes from Gilgal to Bochim, a word that means weeping. Have you connected the dots yet? The grace of God that rolls away your shame comes to you in your place of weeping. And this can only be foreshadowing because the, this does not resolve in the book of Judges. This foreshadows beyond the book of Judges to the New Testament. The only place in the Bible where this tension between God's faithfulness and his justice is satisfied. God's perfect justice was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross and rose again as the full and final payment for all of our failures to obey. That's where God's justice and where his faithfulness and grace come together. The cross is at the same time where God shows himself to be faithful and he, he promises to bless us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're here today, If you're here today and you're feeling just the weight of your failure to obey God, know that Jesus is the only one who can roll that shame away because he's the only one who took it upon himself and paid for it on the cross and rose again so that you can be set free from the snare of sin and welcomed into the people of God and accepted by God. If this is you today, you're just feeling the crushing weight of your failures, trust Jesus to be your Savior today. He will forgive you. If you're here today and you're struggling to find joy in your Christian life because of the burden of your failures, then then look to the cross and remember. Remember that Christ was rejected, that you would be accepted. That, I think, is the purpose of of the reminder of this angel coming up from Gilgal to Bochim to remember the grace of God that was shown to them in Egypt when God rolled away their reproach. We've got to remember. And finally, if you're here today and you're renting space to sin in your life and you're filled with a long list of I can'ts that are really I won'ts, and you've become comfortable and complacent with it, look to the cross. Remember the high cost Jesus paid for your sins to be forgiven. And be challenged to live differently, but not crushed. Be challenged to live differently, but not crushed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this text that is, in a lot of ways, really hard hard for us to hear, hard for us to look at our own hearts and, and come to terms with the fact that we've got so many I won'ts, not I can'ts. We've got so many I won'ts because we fail time and time again to trust your strength. God, 
Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them more firmly on you, Jesus. Help us to be reminded of the grace of God that rolls away our shame and our reproach and that meets us at our point of weeping. We thank you for Jesus for whom the justice and the faithfulness of God were met at the same time at the cross. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.